school. Yeah. <laughs> so it, we we get. I, I'm always happy about that. Who are the people here? My name is Sylvia. Who are the people here who I have never been in the same space with? That we've never met each other. That's fantastic. How about we'll do this? Do, do not worry about this. this. Is not a test. Stand up if we haven't met before today. So everybody else sees you before today. Okay. What's your name? Jennifer. Jennifer, where do you live? Sebastian. Oh, okay. So you came the back way. Uh, one oh, all right. Oh, okay. That's the, let's see what, different way. Okay. I'm very glad that you're here. And it's lovely to live out there. So that's <laughs> Jennifer. What's your name? Also, you came with Jennifer. Thank you. You can sit down. That was passing the test. You did it. <laughs> What's your name? Do you know? Well, thank you very much. What's your name? Michelle. 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 Uh, I, you know, I've never been on jury duty in my whole life. I got called a lot of times, and I made it to the jury duty many times because they said come. And then someone comes in and shows you a short film on patriotism and how great it is. To... <laughs> By the time they finish the film, you feel really excited. And then they always said those people whose last name starts with this, you know, go home. So I never quite made it onto a jury, but I was always disappointed because I had seen that film and I felt I was about to do that patriotic thing. So, and then at, after seventy, they don't call you anymore. So, oh, what? They do. That's old fashioned. Not calling me anymore. Okay, maybe it's true that after eighty, they don't call. Okay. What's your name? Abby, where do you live? Okay, why did you decide to come today? That's great. Well, welcome. That is great. I'm happy that you're here. Welcome. What's your name? And you've done retreats with Howie. Yes. That's great. Probably eight times. Oh, that's wonderful. He comes to Austin? Austin and um, uh, uh, San Antonio. Uh-huh. And um, uh, a center called the Margaret Austin Center in between Houston and Austin. That's great. I'm so pleased. Howie and I started training to teach together. We were in the first cohort of teachers that were trained by Jack Cornfield starting in 1985. So I know Howie from way back. Um, if, as a matter of fact, if, when we finish, if you walk up the hill and you go look in the gratitude hut, there's a gratitude hut, there's a picture of five people who were the first training cohort. And Howie and myself are among them, looking... 35 years younger. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. What's your name? I'm Michelle. I'm from Cleveland. 
I'm glad. And you're Diane. I'm Diane. My daughter lives in Larkspurg, so I often have the opportunity to come and visit her. And come to Spirit Rock. We're staying down at Stinson. So I did one come Monday night here when I usually come because it's too dark here. And so she suggested Wednesday morning. Well, we are, both of us, Monday night and Wednesday morning, are the oldest established. Do you remember that those those two lines out of Guys and Dolls. It's the oldest established permanent floating crap game in New York. That, 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 anyway, Monday nights and Wednesday mornings. Thank you for coming. I'm Lori from Evanston, Illinois, visiting my sister-in-law from Hensfield and one studying to Sheila for a while. Sylvia. Now, but Sylvia's the same, like it's Sheila. It transfers, you know. <laughs> My good friend Sheila, um, Sheila, my good friend Sheila was one of the first three rabbis to do the uh, intensive several-year training, advanced teachers training course at Spirit Rock, along with Jeff Roth and Joanna Katz, the first three rabbis that trained to be mindfulness teachers anywhere and in the Jewish community were here at, at Spirit Rock. So I'm happy that you're here. Hi, I'm Monty. I'm from Evanston with Lori visiting my sister and getting to meet you. Finally. I'm glad about that. I'm Peggy. I'm Well, I'm glad that you came. It's a big ride from San Mateo in the morning. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> you know, I've been here from New York. I, 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 um, emigrated from New York to San Francisco uh, in 1961. And I think that I have cleaned up my speech, but not enough. <laughs> not enough to fool anybody past two sentences. <laughs> That's all right. But you notice I just put the both ends, both L's in all right. I didn't say it's all right. I said it's all right. <laughs> Thank you for coming. What's your name? Yeah. I'm very happy that you're here, Victor. You know, a lot of people, they come in this room. A friend of mine said, you know, you don't really have to teach in this room. We could just come and sit in the room and quietly, it's very quiet in here, and look out the window. Maybe if we got tired of sitting and stand up, walk around a little bit. Susan, nice to see you again. It's been a while. Uh, but that there's something about the room that makes you feel better, uh, especially if the turkeys come by this morning. Then you'll feel really better. They usually come by and look in the window. Thank you for coming.
Well, thank you very much for coming. So this is a, 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 a retreat to recuperate from the stressful weeks. This is the right place to come to recuperate. You know, that um, when, uh, uh, when people come here, they're often surprised to find that although it's not luxurious here, it's very comfortable. You know, that uh, uh, those of us who started with doing retreat practice in the... In, in the 70s and 80s, were doing retreat practices at uh, uh, retreat centers in the woods, down in the Santa Cruz Mountains, or uh, in less comfortable surroundings and sort of camping surroundings. And as soon as you move into a place like this place has of its uh, residence halls, where the heating in the toilets is under the floor, that's everybody's. We have now moved. This is no longer the middle path that the Buddha talked about. This is the upper middle path. It, it, it is really very comfortable to stay here. So, thank you for coming. What's your name? Whitney. Hello. Nice to see you again. That's a good graduation present. Thank you for coming. So are you staying long, Magdalena? For a while. Oh, good. Oh, good. On Monday night. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad. Well, welcome. I'm very happy to hear that. Also, there was another Malia. That's an unusual name to have two Malias, along with the Obamas, have a Malia. But this is a—it's not usual that you find a couple of Malias in the same room. So good. All right. Well, welcome. Here we are. Uh, um, Ace and Brahmani, who are always here and always sitting in those seats over there, are not here. They—they um, weren't able to come. But Ace always says, Sylvia. This is a point where you always say to people, now take a minute, turn to the people next to you and say hello, welcome, especially if they're new people and they haven't been here before, why are you here? But uh, just generally take a minute to greet people and say something. It wakes people up, the greeting, and it turns you on.
just a suggestion. There are about two things that are the best things that we do on Wednesday mornings, I think. One of them is we say hello to each other. That uh, this, this part of the morning, I really, it, it, it happened over time. I think in the beginning, 25 years ago, when we were just starting to meet on this regular basis, people would come into a meditation class a little bit muted and quiet. You know. Well, maybe I think we had the mystique, I don't know, or the, or the misunderstanding that Buddhism or contemplative practice required that we not be buoyant in our interpersonal relationships. And there are plenty, I would not come into a zendo and be whipping it up with people. <laughs> no, and I mean, that's not, no, no bad, nothing bad on Zen, but it has a more well behaved attitude. <laughs> But then over time, as we begin to, as we began, as years went by and we began to realize that this is as much a class as it is a community, which is different. It happens all the time. It's like uh, Sunday is always Sunday in church and Saturday is always Saturday for Jews all around the world and they're all reading the same thing. We are also coming together as a community where we, you can always know that something is happening here. If it's Wednesday morning, something is happening here. Someone will be here, and people will come, and they'll sit quietly. We'll talk about developing understanding. Uh, we'll also share news with each other, all the things that people do together when they come together in a meeting place, sharing the same ideals or ideas. And then it became really uh, clear that it was nice to meet the people who were here. This period of time where you just meet who's here seemed to me, along with the period of time after we've sat quietly and people share who they're thinking about and praying for, really, are the two times that are most meaningful to me. Where I really am always moved by we get to really touch each other in the heart in a certain way. The whole rest, I hope, is fine, but those particular times I think of as being special. I've been thinking very much about the idea of uh, making the transition from thinking that... uh, contemplative practice or meditation practice or wisdom practice is something that happens only in a certain form like sitting quietly. Sitting quietly and focusing the attention and developing a steady focused attention is one of the forms that opens itself to wisdom. But we were talking last week, I think I'm talking every week about the same thing, that the Buddha said there were three ways that we develop 
understanding and that one of them is we understand develop understanding because people talk about it i was thinking about uh somebody said i can oh because your teacher is howie cohen and um one of the principal uh, building blocks of understanding is uh, the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths. I'll talk about that a little bit today, but we talk about it all the time. Whether you talk about the Four Noble Truths or the Four Basic Good Ideas or the Four Really Important Understandings, they are the really building blocks of the important understandings that life comes with pain and difficulty, that we make it worse when we are when we respond ineptly to the difficulties. We often make difficulties into sufferings when we respond to them ineptly, not wisely. That we don't have to do it that way. We could do it in a way that life would be life with difficulties and not difficulties. But it would be at least not complicated with suffering. And that there's a way to develop that kind of a wise mind. Well, you mentioned reading the book, uh, Wise Heart. Somebody said they'd read Wise Heart. I was thinking when you said uh, that Howie was your teacher, that one of the uh, lines that I always think about Howie with is Howie talking about the Four Noble Truths. said the first time, it was, we were all talking about what got us into this kind of practice to begin with. And I remember Howie saying, the first time I heard the Four Noble Truths, I cried. Did, did he say that to you? He said, all of a sudden I realized that I was not the only person in the world who had this sort of melancholy sense of, it's difficult, this life. It's really difficult. And to get up every morning, in spite of what's going on interior to all of us individually, in our families, in our communities, what's going on with the world, with the planet, with everything, and get up anyway and, and, and go about our business and do what we have to do. And that it's not a mistake. I mean, that's just the way it is. To be alive means uh, that you, we are all in a vulnerable place. At any time, we may lose what's dear to us. We may lose our own health, our own friends, our own family, our own plans for the future. We're all vulnerable from the beginning on. And that's not a mistake. And he said it was so reassuring to hear that that's not a mistake. That's what's true. It's all vulnerable. How are we going to really equip ourselves to make our way through a life with engagement, with uh, awe, with delight in having a life? How are we going to want to make relationships with people and and live with them and have children with them and make projects together with them, knowing that everything is hanging on a hair all the time? And that is very precious to come through life. And really, the fact that we're all here this morning is a collective miracle. Everybody here got born on different days and made their way through the planet for the last number of years until today. We crossed zillions of streets, cumulatively, all of us. And we didn't get killed by an automobile yet or anything else until this morning. And so here we are. And if you think about that as... And I know, and not this morning, but... But when you think about that, you think, oh, it's so precarious. It is. And to come and to realize that and think it's precarious, but it's, it's still lovable. And to, to really get that. 
And for Howie to have said, when I heard the Four Noble Truths, realized I wasn't mistaken. It is precarious. But it's wonderful and it's awesome. So I would like for us to, for the people who haven't been here before, there's a sort of a form for what we do. Uh, we get to know each other and say hello. And then we sit a little bit. We do some contemplative exercise for maybe a half hour. And then I teach some and we talk back and forth some. What I've been doing recently when I've been teaching here and in other places and I have been really trying to blur the edge between being in a retreat center and really saying, okay, now I'm going to see clearly and being in a gas station or a supermarket or any place else and saying, I'm going to see clearly now because it matters, that uh, seeing clearly doesn't need a special place. It really uh, matters in intention. I remember, uh, I remember when I first got interested in meditation 40 years ago, 47 years ago, I remember hearing that there was an um, uh, Indian by birth teacher living in the United States whose name was Krishnamurti who had been groomed in his community to be a guru in his community. And he had stepped down. He'd say, I am out, out, I am, um, what do you call it, abdicating as a guru. Besides, he said, I don't think you need to meditate. I think, you know, you can if you want to. But wisdom does not depend on meditation. It depends on looking around around you and seeing the suffering in life. And many, many times I've taught, uh, I've given a talk that started out by saying that and then saying, uh, I kind of get it, what he's saying. If you really looked around all the time, you could really understand that life is, uh-oh. But I, I've said, I think it's really important to have a, a contemplative practice that focuses the mind and balances it and establishes it in uh, a certain amount of balance so that when it's startled it doesn't get overturned. I still believe that. But I really want to be open about um, how much we really need to do contemplative work in a contemplative space and how much I need to remind myself that all the time I need to be looking with special, with clarity of vision to and how and how, if I want that, how can I know if I'm doing it? And it, it's like telling you the end of the the, uh, the end of the mystery novel before the end. But I think the intention may my may may this day go forward, uh, and may I serve my I, may all my decisions be guided by not wanting to create suffering for myself or other people. If we start the day that way, if we have an intention. For our lives, may I not create extra... Life is difficult for everyone. May I not make it more difficult for myself or anybody else. Maybe that alone is like... It's like setting a GPS. (laughs) When I'm about to say something really not nice to somebody, maybe I have a sudden impulse to say, hey, (laughs) Then the GPS says, beep, 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 don't do that. (laughs) Don't you notice that? You ever have that? I was telling that to a friend this morning. I could have something halfway out of my mouth 
and say, wait a minute. Ah, didn't, I'm just taking that back. I don't want to say that. So what I'd like to do is to do a little bit of sitting first, and then we'll talk more about that, the, um, the various ideas that I have and you have about how do we wake up, really. It's waking up to that intention, to live a life that's guided by the intention not to create suffering for oneself or other people. What about if everybody in the world got up and said, okay, I'm not going to do that at the same time? Every religious tradition that has a tradition that that's venerable over ages is saying, peace be with you and also with you. May we have a world of peace. Salam alaikum, as I say it in Arabic. So the first part of this meditation is sit up straight and open your eyes. <laughs> Instead of close your eyes, open your eyes and look around at people. People in the front row have to look around a little bit. But look around at people. Look at people that you know, people that you don't know. You don't have to necessarily catch their eye and have a great communication. Just look. Look at one or look at somebody who's not looking at you and doesn't know that you're looking at them and wish them a good wish, like I hope your day is going well or I hope you feel good. May you feel good. May what worries you be assuaged. May you feel supported in your life. Think a blessing to someone who doesn't even know that you're doing that. My guess, from my own experience, is that I feel better when I sneakily <laughs> send a blessing to somebody. It's not even because I think they know it. It's because I think they don't know it. Like, ah, so like a gratuitous blessing. But doesn't that happen to you? Heart picks up a little bit. like meeting somebody that you not actually meeting but you're meeting them with a blessing and then when you want to close your eyes I think it's a very good thing to uh, have this communal share before we close our eyes that wakes you up a lot and to bless before you close your eyes because that puts your heart in a loving space. I always sit for a few minutes and don't try to do anything, like bring the attention here or there or anywhere. Just sit.
I often find that as I sit quietly in a quiet space, as I sit still in a quiet place, that it seems like my body presents itself to me in a clearer way, like something like a, a in the days that we took Polaroid pictures, you took them out of the camera and you left them in the sun and then after a while the image became clearer and clearer. I begin to feel the parts of my body tingling here, tingling there, little bit of coolness on the parts of my body that are not covered by clothing. The sense of lifting and then relaxing back that comes with the body filling with breath and emptying of breath. Maybe even the awareness that nothing needs to be done. That the body breathes on its own. It is breathed. It's breathed by the relationship of the breath from the trees full of oxygen being around. Our own respiratory system making space for that breath to pull in. Diaphragm pushing down, breath comes in. And then breath goes out. Everyone's body breathing, being breathed into another minute, another moment of viable life. Really remarkably, all those chemical cycles happening. As we sit, the body responds to the different chemistries moment to moment and it expands and then it relaxes back. All these changes in physical sensations, the rib cage opening, the back pushing against the chair, your bottom pushing against the chair. The attention rests sometimes on one or another. When you notice it, like, oh, look at how my back pushes against the chair. 
then you don't have to notice it. You've already noticed it. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. And when there are sounds in the room, sometimes they register, sometimes not. So different sensations of the body. Hearing happens. Warmth or cool happens. Awareness of pleasant or unpleasant happens. And keeps changing. Thoughts come and go. You don't decide to think a thought. Thought thinks itself. If your intention is really to rest just in the plainness of this moment, it's easier to resist the uh, seduction of thoughts. Sometimes it sounds to people like thoughts are the enemy. You mustn't think a thought. Uh, Of course, that's not true. Our Our thinking ability is a great human characteristic. To be able to notice that we're thinking and know what we're thinking about and be able to say to the thought to yourself, not now, I'll think this later. You don't need to embroider the thought or do something with it. It arises and it passes. to support your being here just in this moment-to-moment awareness, you might find it useful to use the two-phrase reminder, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. I say it to myself as a blessing, as a kind of a prayer, as an injunction, as an instruction. May I meet this moment fully means may I really be awake. May I meet it as a friend means may I not have any struggle with it. It's just what's here. May I meet it as a friend. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Some people like to say it over and over again. Some people say it on one breath and then another breath. Some people like to say it every once in a while and otherwise sit quietly. Do whatever suits you. 
and whatever supports you in your ability to meet this moment fully awake in a balanced way and as a friend. And we'll just sit for a while.
it's our habit to uh, set aside the last several minutes or the last part of our sitting together quietly for people to mention into the space whoever they're thinking about who's in some special time of their life. Um, All the graduates that just uh, graduated from here and from there and are thinking about what to do next. May everybody (coughs) have companions that help them figure out what to do next. Who are you thinking about particularly? Maybe we'll read one to everybody here. John Namkung is a man who's generally here on Wednesday mornings, who's in Greece for the second time, uh, volunteering to help um, at a um, um, displaced persons camp for Yazidi uh, refugees. Among other things, he set up basketball hoops and is teaching young boys how to play basketball. Thank you.
May all the people that we've mentioned and all the people that we thought about mentioning and didn't and all the people that we know who are at some juncture in their life of a good news or a difficult news, may everyone have support. May everyone be in caring relationship. May our time here together so open our hearts that we are more available to be in caring relationship with whomever we meet and pass and interact with. May all beings be peaceful and happy and not suffer. thinking about how there's a way in which whatever, wherever we start, we talk about the same thing. It's always about the awareness that everybody is having either a, a, a fortunate news, oh good, or a difficult news, and that one of the things that, um, that is primary in, in terms of what are, we, what are we supposed to learn from what we're what we're doing, that life comes with that kind of news, comes with difficulties and pains and disappointments, also comes with wonder and fantastic things. There's a way that when I listen and we we hear that somebody gets born or twins have a birthday or somebody graduates, somebody's getting ready to die, everything happens. I was... Um, I was talking to Christina, who works here when I arrived here this morning, whose father just died, and she's gotten back from being with him, and he was, uh, he was old, he was 90, I think, 89, 89. And she said, you know, it's hard for her, but she said, he was all right about it. He said, hey, I'm 89, uh, that... Uh, if we wanted to make that into a, a a story about a sage, it would be that uh, you know that the Buddha said things. Everything that comes into existence dies eventually. We all know that, except when it happens to us, it doesn't feel like that. I can't remember who it is, but then some famous wit some years ago said, "I always knew that everybody dies, but I just didn't think it was going to happen to me." And I think most people think that, or we we have a way of not thinking that. And it's not to be gloomy about it, but just to say that's the way it is. The end of, uh, at, at the end of, um, well, here's a better one, because I remember where the citation is from. In the beginning of... Uh, the book, I think it's Report to Greco by um, Cousin Zakis. There's a story called uh, The Same Man That Wrote Zorba the Greek. 
there's a story, there's an essay that begins the death of my grandfather. And he says, when I was a small boy, uh, my grandfather, who lived in a village up the mountain, was dying. And we got the word that grandfather is dying, let's all go up the mountain. Everybody packed up and went up to be at his death. And um, he said, my grandfather had been brought out. He had asked that his bed be taken out into the courtyard so he could look around at his farm and all that he'd done. And he said he had all his grandchildren around him and he gave them each a blessing. Then he said, um, after I'm gone and you have a funeral feast, be sure to put out enough food. Don't, don't under-prepare, don't skimp. But make enough food for the people who come for the funeral. Remember to take good care of the animals, is another thing he said, because they are just like people, just with different clothing on. And he said, turn me around to see the sun setting. And turn him around. And he said, okay, this is my time. I'm out of here. Goodbye. And he said, and he just left. And I remember reading that 20 or 30, 40 years ago, maybe. And I thought, you know, that requires a tremendous amount. It was very appealing to me. Somebody could do that without gnashing of teeth or tearing of hair. We're fortunate if we get to be old and do that. Everybody's going to leave one way or another. If you leave old and happy for it and in a warm relationship, that's a great thing. What I was thinking about a lot this week is, again, as I said, this business of blurring the set, blurring the distance between, blurring the difference between practicing wisdom, developing wisdom in a retreat setting or in your life. Because most of us, all of us in this room are not monastics. We all live in the world. We have the whole world to look at. Krishnamurti said, you don't need to meditate, just look around at the world. Not this week, because all too often, I tell this, not all too often, it's a great story. I tell the story of the cab driver, Mohammed, who said, just look, everybody out there waving as this is a denouement of the whole story waves his hand at all the people in the street, says, look at all these people. It's as if they have been thrown into an ocean, all of them, and nobody knows how to swim. When you look like that, when you realize that everybody's in this ocean and nobody knows how to swim, then you can really pray from your heart. It was the end of a conversation in which I asked him about his prayer life. It was a long cab ride. I asked him about his prayer life. And the prayer long or short, he said, well, you can pray long or short, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that you pray from your heart. So how do you pray from your heart? So you just look around and you see everybody out there. We don't see it when we're just in the street or in the supermarket. When we hear and we say, I'm thinking about my uncle or my cousin or my brother or my nephew who's struggling with this or that, then we hear it. But just looking at people, you don't have a sign over them. But you can guess that something's going on with everybody. And they're trying to figure out what should I do next and how to keep myself contented. I've been, uh, I've been preparing for a talk that I have to give in a couple of weeks that's called um, Every Moment is a Moment of Practice. Well, I mean, it's my whole thing my, that I talk about here. But I was thinking, how about to a group that hasn't heard me before? 
and I see that uh, I got the brochure in the mail it says Louis Borstein speaking about every moment is a moment of practice and I and I realized I have to start by saying what are we practicing practicing what and say how is your practice going that's a thing that a lot of people ask who are meditators and they go on retreats and say how's your practice say, oh, my practice is salt, my practice is this, my practice is that. They say, what are you practicing? I am practicing transforming the the, um, habits of my heart from contentious to compassionate. That's it. That's really it. Nobody, actually, you know what people get better? If I say, I am trying to develop a heart, like uh, a mind, like uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That's what I want. I want a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood where everybody feels safe, including me. I like that, especially including me. There's a novelist around who I very much admire who has a tagline where she's fond of saying, uh, uh, I, I, my mind is a dangerous neighborhood. I wouldn't want to go there alone. And I admire her writing skills tremendously, but I don't want my mind to be a dangerous neighborhood. I want my mind to be really a good neighborhood where I can go there alone. I I, uh, I had the fortune, good fortune, to meet briefly on a couple of occasions a man who's now dead. Uh, he's now died. His name was uh, Gosananda, Maha Gosananda, and he was the senior prelate of Cambodia for the decades at the end of his life. And he was a fantastic uh, worker on the world stage for peace. He had programs to uh, eliminate um, landmines in the world. Uh, when the, in 1995, on the 50th anniversary of the uh, liberation of Auschwitz, there was a ceremony at Auschwitz and uh, heads uh, lots of um, ranking members in the Jewish community, rabbis, etc., were there. But a lot of uh, clergy from different traditions were there. And one of the people who was there for the symbolic opening of the gates at Auschwitz for that ceremony on the 50th anniversary was Mahagosananda, who was by that time a little old man, in brown robes, um, which is the color of Cambodian Theravada Buddhist robes. And my friend Sheila Weinberg was there at that dedication. And she said, oh, Mago Sananda was there. I said, oh, you know, I admire him so much. What did he say? She said, well, he didn't say very much all through all the ceremonies and all the meetings. She said, he kept, just kept on saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Didn't say very much. <laughs> what we've talked about a lot of times since then is that is so the, first of all, it's the complete perfect protection mantra. If my mind is saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, that means that I have no hesitation about blessing the whole world. That means that I feel comfortable in the whole world. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to bless the whole world. There's a line in the Metta Sutta that says that you want to develop um, 
ethical and moral behavior so that your mind will not be filled with regret or blame. This this is the beginning of it. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, contented, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. I love that line, by the way. All the lines before it are do it this way, do it this way, do this completely correctly, do this completely correctly, do this, do this, do this. And then as if, just to say, in case I left anything out, not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. It's like a summation. And in case I missed anything, if it's not wise, don't do it. So I love that. But then it goes on to say, wishing in gladness and in safety. That, and I make this illusion, this, this connection between what I just said, completely impeccable behavior from which wishing in gladness and in safety that the mind is safe when it's completely sure that it is free from um, afflictive thoughts or feelings or intentions that I make myself safe when I bless the whole world, when I am able to say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, and it's not just uh, blah-de-blah, bing, ring the bell, I really mean that. It has to be coming from a mind that's feeling safe and comfortable. And then, I mean, there's nothing more. So I, I was thinking about it earlier this morning, I was thinking, it's the... It's the ultimate protection mantra, as is, may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. That's an, also an ultimate protection mantra. May there be nothing between me and the whole world, that I, and nothing that holds me back from wishing it well. I was, uh, here, I want to read one more line of this. Not doing the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. I love that. It's actually interesting because it doesn't say may all beings be happy. It says may all beings be at ease. And I really think that that's that's what they're talking about. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. That it means at ease. It doesn't mean overjoyed. It means all right that uh, Cousin Zakis' grandfather, let's assume he was not happy, overjoyed to be dying, but he was all right about it. Take care of everybody. The people whose deaths I know about who said something amazing like that, the pe- not even the people I know, the people who uh, died in planes that... Uh, uh, crashed on 9-11, who phoned, said, take care of yourself, take care of the children. I'm not going to make it home. Take care of yourself, take care of the children. I love you. They didn't say mad things. They didn't say, I never liked your brother. Or, I never liked your mother. You know, that, that, you know when, when, when your mind is completely clear, 
You don't do that. I mean, that's nonsense. I'm going to die. Take care of yourself. Take care of the children. Wishing in gladness and in safety, because you're safe. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. That means I am safe. So then it goes on. May all beings be at ease. Let none despise another or let none despise. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. The operative word, the operative phrase, is whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. So I've been living up in Nevada on a community off of uh, uh, east of uh, east of the highway in uh, Belmer and Keys, where my one of my daughters lives. And I've been babysitting her dog for ten days, and she'll be home in another five days. So I don't know the neighbors very well. I know the neighbors that walk dogs because that's what I meet up there. And But it's a very quiet community. It's a fairly affluent community because they all live on the water and people have boats on their front lawns. And uh, they, if their garages are open, big boats, you know, on trailers. And if their garages are open, their garages are full of play equipment, uh, motorcycles and uh, bicycles. And so it's kind of a, you think to yourself, this has to do with this story that I'm telling you. I'm walking down the street, and on her street, down the street, there's a big sign on a tree, prominent. It says, in this home, in this home, we believe Black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No person is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. I thought, oh, that's okay. You know? So that erased my bad feeling about everybody here is just (laughs) living a... It's so easy to fall into bad thinking. Like, look at all these people. They have nothing to do but play around. You know, okay. So I, I confess. I passed a bumper sticker on a truck, you know, one of those trucks with big wheels. A bumper sticker on the truck says, God bless the whole world, no exceptions. So that sounded to me like whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. I saw that God bless the whole world, no exceptions. I felt really uplifted. Look at that. That people with a list of human women's rights are human rights. All right. And my husband called and he said, uh, did you see that disagreeable sign on uh, the main boulevard going out? I said, no, you know, I haven't gone out, just walked the dog. He said, it's very different. Diff- really, this was an alarming situation. One of those signs that's lit up, you know, that tells you traffic, it's such and such an exit is closed or there's a traffic jam there or that, had a very nasty and vulgar epithet about gay people. 
and he said it says that in the middle of that. I thought, for first of all, it. Um, I watch how my mind leaps to conclusions. First, it makes the conclusion, oh, look at that. People are really nice. All kinds of people are really nice. Even people with big truck drivers, tires on their truck, on their, on their cars or trucks. They're also nice. They've got these good signs. Then they've got these terrible signs. So what's it? I, I had the same experience. I've had it so many times over where I'm thinking, oh, my own mind runs to editorialize. It sees those nice signs about that everybody is everybody, everybody is worthy. God bless the whole world, no exceptions. Say, oh, see, people are really good. Then he calls, he says, there's that sign out there. And I say, oh, no, they're not. People are this and that. And I end up thinking that what's really true is people are people. And they have different, Some, in my view, some of them are deluded and some are not. And I have the view that the people, people who put these signs up and whoever put that sign on their truck, God bless the whole world, no exceptions, are happier than whoever put out that mean-spirited epithet on that. And so what motivates a person to do a thing like that? So I think about, and I think about that being part of my Dharma practice. Think about, those of you who I know for many years will know that, um, oh, this is a long time ago, six years ago, my husband took very ill in uh, when we were living in France and uh, ultimately ended up in the emergency room in, a, um, in an emergency state and was actually in a coma for a couple, 10 days, and three weeks before he was out of the hospital. He's fine now, whatever they... They figured out what he had, and he's all better, and he's fine. And uh, when he went home, he went home in the company of a, of a nurse who came to accompany him to come home because he needed nursing care on the, on the plane home. And I flew home by myself the day after. And I had an experience getting on the plane, where in the train station, actually, on the way to the plane, where I came around a corner... And there was a big flight of stairs and the escalator wasn't working. And I looked up the, the stairs and I felt, ah, and I've got a suitcase over here. And from behind me, a voice said, Je vous aide, madame, I'll help you. And a, vo- and a hand took my suitcase out of my hand and this tall, skinny guy ran up the f- two flights of stairs with my suitcase and put it down on the top step and waved at me and went away. So it so lifted up my heart. I came home and I started to think about that moment. I was so discouraged and it had been such a hard three weeks. And, and he was this, I didn't even ask for help. All I did was look at the stairs and the broken escalator. And this guy picks up my bag. Je vous aide, madame, runs up. And I, so I started to say, make the whole dharma out of it, that people are fundamentally good. People will look around, they'll see that you're in need, and they'll rush to help you. A year later, we're back in France again, <coughs> changing trains at Gare du Nord, and uh, it was very crowded getting onto the train. And the door opens and people get off and people are getting on. And right behind me, someone says, Je vous aide, madame, I'll help you. 
picks up my suitcase, takes it in. The end of that story is that person puts my suitcase down in front of a person who is prepared to pick my pocket, which they do when the train goes around a certain bend that they know where it is. So when I got off one step later, I didn't have a passport and I didn't have my money and my purse was gone. The same thing, I'll help you, madam. And so my whole story that I'd gone around, people are fundamentally good. Now I can make another story. People are fundamentally out to, you know. Every time I get a phone call that says, you have won, but, you know, the other day it changed. Usually I get a phone call and it says, hello, um, is this Sylvia? Yes, it is. I'm happy to tell you that you have just won an all-expense-paid-da-da-da trip to here and there. And often I'm a little annoyed when that happens. Are you a little annoyed when that happens? Do you not answer the phone when you don't recognize? Okay. The other day I was talking to a friend about, I want to have a mind like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I did a big exposition of why I want it. I'd been in the middle of a long conversation about that. And I just hung up the phone, and it rang immediately after that. And I picked it up without looking. They started in with, good news, you have won. And I didn't hang up or say anything. I just listened for a while. And I was listening to the thing. And I was thinking to myself, I wonder if this is a real woman or whether this is a recorded announcement. I hope it's a recorded announcement because otherwise this poor woman has a job of saying this nonsense a hundred times a day. That's a terrible job. And then in the middle of that, I thought to myself, huh, my mind is better. In that particular moment, my mind was better. In that particular moment, my mind was like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I did not get annoyed by that. Accidentally, I didn't get annoyed. But not accidentally. I had just finished talking about I'm trying to have a mind that's a certain way, which is going to get me to the final point that I wanted to make. I wondered when I was going to get there. <laughs> because I have this piece of paper here that I wanted to read to you. I think that uh, one of the things that causes changes in the mind I, I, I think if, if it goes without saying that everybody who's here is not just to be here because it's pleasant to calm down on a Wednesday morning. That's not enough reason to drive from a far distance. I mean, you could take a nap in your backyard and sit under a nice tree. I mean, what, we're all here because we have a sense that there's some kind of cultivation of mind that could happen. when we, Is that not true? Yes. Don't you think so? You think so? Tell me you think so. Put your hand up. Okay. We think something's going to happen. We call it a spiritual journey because a journey is something that gets us from here to there. I frequently say to people, where do you want to get? What do you, what, what do you want to get to? I want to get from here to here, really. Here to here and awake. Here to here, not forgetting. There are people who have to do disagreeable jobs like make recordings, not let alone talk live to people. There are people who are also in such dire straits that they have to pickpocket, or they feel they have to pickpocket. People who are unfortunate enough to not have had circumstances that will keep them away from being pickpockets. Uh, and how I could hold them all in the sort of realm of compassion and do something to make a world where nobody has to be a pickpocket, where we share with each other. 
So Nicholas Kristoff is one of my favorite people. You may know him as a columnist in the New York Times. And uh, he wrote this in Sunday's New York Times. Uh, it's, a, it's an article about the death penalty. And about, it starts out with two men, a man and his nephew, who just got out of prison after... Well, they went into prison in 1976. And they just went out of prison, the two of them, because they were exonerated by DNA from a crime that they absolutely didn't do that many years ago. They spent their whole life because of zealous prosecutors well, who didn't have a... Anyway, so Nicholas Kristoff is writing about the death penalty. He says, my interest in the death penalty arises partly from a mistake of my own. At the beginning of 2000, I spoke to Barry Sheck of the Innocence Project, who told me about a white man on death row in Texas, Cameron Todd Wilding, Willing, Willingham, whom he believed to be innocent. I discussed with editors the possibility of doing a deep dive into the case, but I let myself be lured away by the sirens of that year's Iowa caucus instead. I never wrote about Willingham, and he was executed in 2004. Subsequent evidence strongly suggests that it was it not only that not only was Willingham innocent, but that no crime was even committed. He had been convicted of splashing gasoline around his house and then setting it on fire to murder his three little children. Experts later showed that there was no gasoline and the fire was simply an accident that probably started with faulty wiring. Imagine what it would be like to lose the people you loved most and then be convicted of murdering them and finally be strapped to a gurney and executed by lethal injection. Partly because I failed to investigate William's story, I have thrown myself back into the case of Kevin Cooper, a black man on death row in California whose case reeks of prosecutorial misconduct. So I don't have to read you the next of it, but the point that I was touched by is that I think sometimes we make a mistake and feel badly enough about it that it shapes our whole life. Uh, I don't have such a I don't have a story about that kind of a shape for life, but I do have a story. You probably have to think about it for a minute. Maybe you'll have one to add. I was in India um, in in the in 1995. I was in India in Dharamsala. I was part of a conference of Western Buddhist teachers talking to the Dalai Lama. And uh, there is in India a lot of begging in the streets. And um, at one point, a young woman uh, was clearly a beggar with a child on her hip, both of them very raggedy looking, who came up to me asking for something. And I don't even, I'm sure, I, 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 I hopeful I gave her something. But I remember looking at her hands and you know when when your hands are um, have been not washed for a long time, you can see that in the, in the lines in your hands. If, if I've been gardening, I can see in the lines of my hands. 
And somehow when I put out my hand, she put out her hand. And I looked at her hands and I thought, I don't think this woman has had a bath. Maybe ever. She, you know, maybe was born in a really poverty state. But I was so touched by the fact that she looked like the, the, the dust of the earth was integrated into her skin. That I came home and I realized shortly thereafter someone invited me up to Calistoga to one of those resorts with hot, beautiful water. And I was floating in the middle of a pool with hot, beautiful, whatever, medicinal salts. And I thought to myself about that woman who's not going to have a bath and the people in the world who have not enough water. And to whatever degree that has shaped my frugality about water till now, that I really am very careful. We're not having a water shortage anymore, but I'm careful about water. To the degree that I am, to some degree, past water, I think a lot about conservation messages. And sometimes I think one thing happens that moves the meter incrementally in the mind. Do you, can you think of one? Doesn't mean I don't take showers or I don't take baths or, or enjoy them. I do. But I think about that. What, 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 what thing happened to you that you thought from now on? What was your changing moment? Did you see that film about... Yeah. I think there was a documentary a while ago of birds dying on a certain island. And it's really... Did you see that documentary? It's horrible to look at. Unbelievable. Unbelievably horrible to look at. But it made you realize that none of us, none of us, um, how impactful plastic is. And I started using glass after that. Like, I just, I'm going to go visit my grandchildren and talk about that. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah, so. You know, and, and just, you know, it's just a thing to think about, not to say it's right or wrong. I have friends who go to the supermarket with glass containers to put stuff in because they don't want to bring it home in plastic. Um, not saying this is the way to live or it's all about plastic or it's all about water. I think it's all about being awake, really, and thinking. Thinking, what do I need to do now? Somebody, uh, oh, somebody asked me something. I, was, I don't even remember. I was driving my car. Maybe it was one of my daughter's. T- telling me some story about something and said, oh, I don't know what to do next. I said, you know, that's a story about being a human being. What should I do now? Now with this inf- extra information, saw that documentary, what should I do next? Saw the woman with the hands, what should I do next? How can I live in this world and engage and celebrate it and think about it? it's amazing? Uh, the... Um, I do want to tell you about this. I went to the graduation of uh, the Rachel Carson College 
of the University of California, Santa Cruz, had its graduation last Saturday. And one of my, my youngest grandson graduated from there on Saturday. So, uh, first of all, it was a beautiful day in Santa Cruz and not too hot and everything was fine. And a tremendous, I read the names of the graduates on the, on, of Rachel Carson College and they were very predominantly Latino names, which I was thrilled about. Everybody, it seems like, was guitarists and Fernandez and Garcia. And I thought, okay, I'm not so surprised. It's, you know, that part of the country. But I thought, great, great. And many of them made a point, the people making talks, made a point of how many graduates were the first person in their family to graduate from college. Uh, when the graduation started, the first speaker, the first eight speakers, each spoke for about ten seconds. And each of them said, welcome and congratulations to the graduates and their parents of Rachel Carson College of the University of California at Santa Cruz. And they said it in Tagalog and Ukrainian and Russian and French and Spanish and uh, English and two other things that they, oh, um, Chinese. And they just came, each one came up and said the same thing, da 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 and uh, not, and now we're going to, they just did it. And I thought, what a, an act of recognizing inclusion and recognizing diversity. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. You just say hello to everyone in every language that is represented there. And then all these various students, most of whom, because Rachel Carson College, as you can imagine from its name, is devoted to environmental science and ecological thinking. So they have degrees in ecological awareness and engineering and uh, and I thought to myself you know what all of these people are not despondent they actually think that they're going to go out and save the world now and they might they're going to do something and uh, you know one of the things that I realized about myself is I hang out a lot with old people I hang out a lot with people who say okay I'm getting dressed to go on this march but you know, uh, I marched in. I marched in two thousand and three. I marched in uh, nineteen ninety five. I marched in uh, nineteen uh, whenever it is that we were marching about Vietnam. I marched when the civil rights marching was happening. We 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 already marched a lot, and some of the marches made a difference, but it didn't make enough difference. I thought to myself, the truth is that I am a little bit. Uh, what 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 my mind reads as wisdom of uh, it's not going to work is partly age fatigue and discouragement. These people are not fatigued or discouraged. They're not prepared to say, "Forget about it. It's a done deal." And it would do me so much good to be there and say, "You know what? I'm going to think like them for this day." And, and I, so the the whole thing that I wanted to say is that I think that pain. What I was going to get around to is if you pay attention, there is no situation 
and no no thing that you cannot learn from. Learn from those signs on the lawn of the people that they didn't think were going to have those kind of signs on their lawn. And then the terrible sign on the freeway that said what I certainly didn't think you're going to see in Marin County. So you don't know. You just don't know. All you have to do is say people come in all kinds of varieties. And what can I do to make it different? So maybe one more thing about you can learn everything everywhere. The Buddha said what you really have to learn is that everything changes. That his penultimate sentence in his whole life was transient. Everything that arises passes away. Transient are all conditioned things, he's said to have said in that last sentence. Well, who knows what he actually said because it was 200 years before they wrote anything down. But let's say, he said, the important thing to see is that that life, all life is temporal. Everything changes, everything changes. So that it's very... Uh, I remember thinking in my early days of meditation practice, I'd be agonized with a certain thought or a certain memory. And then after a while, I wasn't. I thought, oh, look at that. That went away. And after a while, I think one of the things that happens as people are practitioners and they really pay attention, things pass. The things that your grandmother said that you thought, oh, that's just grandmother silliness, like... There's no point to cry over spilt milk. Turns out to be true, you know, that, that they, things pass. And uh, what, what else do grandmothers say that turns out to be true? It's not the end of the world. How many grandmothers said it's not the end of the world? You know, it's not the end of the world. Barack Obama said his last day in office, it's not the end of the world until the end of the world. So it's not the end of the world. To have a different view, things change. So I was reading the, how could I, that's the three things that the Buddha said you have to know. That things change, that struggling with change when you can't, because that's the way it is, is the cause of suffering. And that everything has to do with everything else that came before. The world is, the planet is in jeopardy because of everything that's happened. But a lot of it is stuff that, maybe most of it is stuff that has happened that is the the cause that is caused by human beings so it could change by what human beings continue to do everything depends on everything so i was thinking about how do you see that in daily life so i like to read the uh, vows section of the sunday new york times how many people read the vows don't you read the vows why do you read them i love love i love love so the vows section is who married who, right? Who married who? And I, I actually I read quite a lot of them every week because so they're, they're all like fairy tales. So and so, where did they met? They you know they sat down next to each other on a plane, and then now they're getting married. And uh, and when I was going to school, today is my sixty fourth wedding anniversary. Is that bizarre? <laughs> Is that bizarre? I was one month shy of my 19th birthday when I married the man that I'm still married to. That's bizarre. I mean, (laughs) it's a lot of it is luck. A lot of it is luck. Really, honestly, a lot of it is luck. I also like him, but, you know, it's a lot of luck. Anyway, 
I read this. I was reading the other day, and I realized when I got married, um, first of all, only men and women got married to each other. Nowadays, men marry men, and women marry women. Also, people married generally the same religious background. So they were married in this and that uh, Catholic church. They were married in this and this, by this and this rabbi somewhere. Now everybody marries more. They always say who officiates. So sometimes it says so-and-so and and -and so-and-so officiated or um, uh, a man from India married a bride from clearly with a Jewish surname and they had a um, a, um, a wedding conducted by the lineage holder in his particular religious tradition with elements from her Jewish background incorporated. I know about that. I have incorporated Judaism into some of my children's marriages to other people who had other people officiating. Officiating is officiating the Dalai Lama once in a conference that I was at, someone said, can I stay this afternoon when you're doing the um, um, Bodhisattva initiation or I'm a, very, I'm a devout Catholic, is it wrong for me to do a Bodhisattva initiation? And the Dalai Lama said, no. He said, I don't think so. He said, because after all, compassion is compassion and a blessing is a blessing. And that's what I think. A blessing is a blessing. Compassion is compassion. doesn't matter what language you say it in. So I'm reading this the other day, who's marrying who, and in what tradition, and people with different ethnicities. And I'm thinking, this would, you know, 50 years ago it wasn't like this. It's not finished. We are not finished with people needing to have diversity training and people to learn a different way. But this is one of the ways we learn. You read the paper and you see, wow, everybody marries everybody. Look at that. And you see it in the ads on TV. Everybody marries everybody. Everybody diapers babies and discuss. I love this. my favorite for, at the time, for the at period. There's uh, two parents is diapering a baby and discussing the merits of different powders or anti-rash things. And the two parents are men. I love that ad. I just And they're not saying, by the way, you notice that the two parents are men. They're just discussing the baby schmears. You, know, you think the people who are growing up with this are going to have a different consciousness. Honestly, the best way, I, the story I know that I can tell you about that is 20 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, Mid nineties, I lived in uh, in Jerusalem for um, a month, a little bit more than a month actually. And in Jerusalem, whereas uh, in uh, Tel Aviv is a very modern kind of a city, people are more diverse. They wear all different kinds of clothing in Jerusalem because it has a very heavy population of. Uh, very committed religious people, not only Jews, but uh, Orthodox Christianity. So it's a more modest city. Women are wearing long sleeves. When I was there, 
women didn't wear pants. We wore a, you wore a skirt and you wore a fairly long skirt, and you covered your hair if you went into the old city and you wore well, you wore a hat. And I did that for a month, and I did that out of respect for the people that lived there, for, out of respect for the teachers I studied with. And I enjoyed the people I studied with, and I enjoyed living there, and I even enjoyed dressing up that way. And then at the end of the time that we were there, uh, my husband and I were on our way home, and instead of flying home, we flew first to the city of Eilat, which is right down on the border with Egypt, for two or three days. And Eilat is an international resort city. People come from Europe uh, to go to the beach in Eilat. And so we came to came to Eilat, got out of the airport, went in a cab to our hotel, went in our hotel room, and decided to go down and go out and look at the beach. And so we walked in the front of the hotel, and then we walked out of the back of the hotel onto the beach. And the beach at Eilat uh, looks the same as the beach on the Riviera. And people are wearing all skimpy clothing. And I, I realized that when I went out and I looked around at the clothing, I thought, oh, look at this, so naked. Uh, and I realized, because it was such a weird thing to think, and then it took me a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, uh-oh, what's that? that's a weird thought for me to have. And I thought, what's the matter with my, my daughters look like that? <laughs> when I was young, I looked like that. What's the matter? But I had, I had changed my consciousness from the time that I was there. And then I honestly thought, ooh, look at that, so so immodest. Uh, what are you thinking? What, are, what happened to you? But the idea of changing your mind, that your mind gets changed by your environment, and that this whole world now looking at uh, everybody with everybody, maybe reading the New York Times or, or watching ads on TV of people diapering babies is going to change people's consciousness more than all the diversity groups that people do with, with, with good intention. But to be able to really look at your mind and see my mind changed, and this is what changed it, and to know that the feeling of um, not liking, ah, oh, look at these people, then when you get over that, you think, oh, these people are beautiful, and they're different people, and my daughters look like this, and they have beautiful bodies, and this is what people do these days. And how much our, our minds, are, uh, our attitudes are shaped by what kind of stuff we feed our minds. And just to watch, to pay attention to it. So I, more and more I think to myself, if we really paid attention, if I really paid attention to the New York Times, I'd not only see that, but I could learn those same truths. Everything changes. That this is not your grandfather's Oldsmobile. That the people are now... <laughs> I see wedding... I, I go to weddings, and I went to... I was married in a... I was married in a synagogue, in a... Wedding gown. Oh, that's that's actually today, uh, in a wedding gown that um, was uh, did not expose my shoulders, and, but because it had short sleeves, I had to wear long gloves because elbows were not supposed to stick out. Elbows are very apparently erotic. <laughs> I didn't know that, but, but so. The, 
my grandfather actually thought ankles were erotic. He's, he, you know, but depending on what you can't look at. But I thought, look how things change. Things change. So if, if what we're supposed to learn is that things change, they change because other things changed, and they keep on changing, and will keep on changing. And to be able to say, "This is now," not, this was that was then. This is now. We went to visit. This is a good story to end with, about because the third thing that you're supposed to see, that everything changes, that uh, change makes new things that make new things that make new things, and that everything now has to do with everything that ever happened. What we do now has to do with the whole future. So it may be true that everything is empty and fleeting and has no permanent substance, but it makes tomorrow, and it makes the day after tomorrow, so that everything is empty, but everything matters. That's really true. been thinking about that all week. And the other thing is that... Uh, Suffering comes from not being able to make that change. We went back to visit when my husband and I were married. That first year that we were married, we lived in Borough Park, which is a part of Brooklyn that was at that time all Jewish people and all committed to religious practice. It's even more densely populated with very orthodox Jews, many of them followers of different Hasidic rabbis now. And we went back oh, some years ago, uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. We were visiting and we went back to look at our, the area. We went to the house that we lived in for a year after we were married. And uh, I rang the bell. It was an upstairs of a duplex. I rang the bell and a woman answered the, uh, the bell upstairs and I said, uh, I used to live here. Uh, I lived here in 1955 for a year. She said, oh, we moved in right after that. So we must be the people who moved in right after that. She said, do you want to come up and see the apartment? So I said, yeah. You know, she said, okay, I buzz you in. We come in, we go upstairs. And she is, uh, she tells us she's uh, recently widowed. Her husband just died. We go in, we're sitting in the living room and uh, talking about what was in the, each of those rooms. And I could tell because the walls were all lined with religious texts that her family was a very religiously oriented people, per place, and that her husband must have been some sort of a scholar. So I said, uh, was your husband a scholar? She said, uh, yeah, no, not really. He said he had a job, he did this and this, but he liked to study. And uh, we talked about different things. And at some point she said, I'll show you the rest of the apartment. And on some wall in a hallway, she had her three sons and their three families. And you could see of these three families, two of them were dressed in this sort of ultra-conservative way of long sleeves and long skirts which she was also wearing her head co hair covered and long sleeve and long skirt. And the other one was quite modern-looking, dressed. The modern family had less children, and the not-modern family dressed had more children. And I was looking at them, and I looked from one and to the other and to the other and to the other. And she noticed that I was doing this, and she said, you know what, everyone's different 
I thought to myself, this woman has got it made, you know? <laughs> she really has figured it out. Everybody's different. She said, uh, I said, was your husband sick long before he died? She said, no, not so sick. Not so long, but he didn't tell the doctors about it for a long time. And uh, I wish he had, because if he had, they they probably could have maybe saved his life. I said, do you feel angry about that? She said, no, it's just what happened. I thought, ah, oh, this woman knows something that I, you know. That I, I, I went to use the bathroom and I passed one of her back bedrooms and I saw she has a she had a treadmill in it. You don't think of that kind of woman who looks that way as working out on a treadmill. She said, well, you know, you have to keep yourself healthy. I I walk on the treadmill every day while I listen to the news. And uh, I just was so in my place. We were walking back to the train station, my husband and myself afterwards. He said, oh, she asked me at one point, what did I do for a work? I said, I'm a psychologist. I am. So we're walking back to the train station. He said, I noticed that you uh, didn't tell her exactly what you are. So why did you say I'm a psychologist? Uh, You didn't say, uh, did you not want her to know that you were a Buddhist teacher? I said, no, uh, not because of that. Uh, Oh, she said, she asked me, I said, I'm a psychologist. She said, do you give advice? I said, you know, not so frequently. Anyway, <laughs> but he said, did you not want her to ask you any questions? I said, I was afraid that she was going to ask me some question. And I didn't want to have any questions because I thought she was way wiser than I. And I didn't want to be in a position of having to answer a question. But, you know, the thing is, every one of those stories that I told you this morning, you never know. You just don't know. Every opinion I have mostly turns out to be not true. That, you know, that whatever idea I have, the most, maybe most important line in the Metta Sutta is at the end where it says, the pure-hearted one being freed, the pure-hearted one, freed from drowsiness. Well, we'll back up one sentence. Freed from hatred and ill will. Wouldn't that be great? All ill will, gone free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness. One should sustain this recollection. So you always think, what recollection should you sustain? May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. That's maybe what we should sustain. This is said to be the sublime recollection, the sublime abiding, by not holding to fixed views. I love that. Not It's like this. These people are wrong. These people are right. People are good. People are not good. People are this. People are that. People are everything. People are everything. Things change. People change. They get different ideas. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world of suffering. Meaning again, the clarity of vision, which means mindful awareness, this is what's happening. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. There are like two or three things to say. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. 
may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. That's about it. What else are we going to say? <laughs> you know, the Buddha said something. Um, it's, it's said that his next to the last sentence, his next to the last sentence was um, transient, our all conditioned thing. Everything that arises passes away. And the last sentence that he said was move into the future with confidence. I really like that. Especially now with, the, you know, this thing, whoa. Uh, they got a lot of terrible things that are facing this earth. But move into the future with confidence. All those young people going to school, finishing with school, going out to change the world, they undoubtedly will. May they change it in some really wonderful way. May that be so. And I'll see you next week. Yeah, there you go. What a pleasure. May you please just remove the chairs in the middle section. That's right. May all people be, be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering and put back the chairs. <laughs> Hello, Susan. Nice to see you. Yeah. Wow. Meditation station. So you had basically at some point in Spirit Rock, I learned about having like the train. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.